0: Welcome to Embargo, to podcast featuring Intelligent Talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole on this wet and cold Friday morning here in Washington DC what is up Tim
1: lovely weather we're having Brian it is
0: <laughs> it, at least we're not
1: Texas or, or at if least we're, we're not in Texas. Texas we would be with Ted Cruz in
0: in Cancun no we would never we would never make that mistake uh, but uh, yes indeed it is uh, it is cold it is it is pretty gross outside. We are happy to be inside recording this podcast. Uh, Welcome to everybody uh, to the latest episode of Embargoed. Uh, Thank you all for joining us once again. Thanks to everybody who listened to the most recent episode uh, about Myanmar. We're gonna not surprisingly circle back to that at the end of the program. Uh, But today we have uh, a very special episode. We have some, some guests with us today, which we will introduce in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, just the normal uh, introductory notes, we are not here giving legal advice. We are not here discussing any confidential information uh any of the opinions that you hear today are mine and tim and those of our guests they are not uh, our respective law firm's opinions please blame us if you don't like what we're telling you uh don't blame the people we work for uh and uh you can as always find us anywhere uh apple spotify google stitcher overcast youtube Um, if you enjoy the pod please subscribe please give us a rating a five-star rating hopefully uh, and uh, as always, we're here every two weeks and, and again, very excited to have uh, some guests with us today. And in particular, and, and I'll just jump right into the roadmap and, and then uh, we'll, we'll introduce our guests. Um, we have teased this for the last couple episodes, but obviously Tim and I have spent a lot of time the last few months talking about all of the big changes coming uh, on the US side with the new election uh, and all of the policy the policy landscape shifting significantly. Uh, and so we uh, want to do a bit of a, over the next couple months, we want to sort of do a tour around the world to sort of see not only how things are uh, what's going on in the US is affecting other parts of the world, but also to hear from others uh, about what is going on in their own home countries and regions and, and how uh, things are changing rapidly there as well. And to do that, we we want to start with um, one of our closest allies who i think we didn't manage to completely alienate over the last four years maybe alienate we, just we a little. we still
1: have a special relationship
0: Brian. we we still do i'm told uh, thankfully we haven't completely alienated uh our friends over in the uk so we're starting in the uk and we have two guests uh that i'm going to introduce in just a moment uh and we're going to spend the bulk of our time focused on uk issues uh finding out what uh what is happening post brexit uh we obviously we know we have a number of listeners in the UK, but I think this is a great opportunity for those uh, who are listening in the US and other parts of the world to to get a some good insight into what's happening in in the UK and what may be coming up uh, over the next uh, months and years uh, in a post Brexit UK. And then we're going to so that's going to be the bulk of our program, and then uh, we're going to wrap up with a with a lightning round where we're going to hit Myanmar again with the new uh, executive order being issued, Yemen and then two favorites, WeChat and TikTok, uh, to check back in with them. And that, that'll be a wrap for today. So um, without further delay, uh, let me get right to it and introduce our guests. So we are very uh, grateful and happy to have, uh, I think we're fair to say friends of the pod, friends of our law firm, friends of ours, uh, who we've been lucky enough to collaborate with and work with over the last few years. Um, we have in, based in London, a uh, partner at Stevenson Harwood Sue Millar is with us. And also uh, then representing a little further north, up based in Edinburgh, uh, Tom Stocker with Pinson Masons is with us. And uh, so we welcome Sue and Tom to Embargoed. How are you both doing this Friday afternoon?
2: Good, it's raining here too.
0: Uh, extremely well, thank you.
3: It's very sunny here in Scotland, as uh, as always. I've got my whiskey in the background. A little plug for Scottish whiskey. <laughs> this is a great talk. So, th- thank you for the invitation. And and, um, and
1: always go to Scotland for the weather. I mean, of the three places on the planet, <laughs> Scotland is the
0: sunny place. That abs- this is once absolutely. in a lifetime. I think that's Indeed. great. Up is up is down. Black is white. Scotland is sunny. Uh, so there there you go. Um, so I think we want to. Um, so we're gonna have a bit of a you know kind of a round round table here. We have a number of topics we wanna to get to. Uh, I think the as I sort of said at the outset, obviously we've had a lot of upheaval here in the States with um, the sort of tail end of the policy shifts under the Trump administration, now already some big reversals and some reconsiderations under the Biden administration. Obviously in the UK, we have the turmoil and the tumult that has come along with uh brexit and negotiating an exit and and then of course 11 pm on uh the last day of december uh we have this sort of the that wind down period is now officially over and we are in a post brexit uk so let me just start um sue with you uh in terms of just for the again for our audience who might not be as familiar with sort of some of the contours of this what this looks like what changes this has really brought about just so, big picture-wise, what are what has already happened, and sort of what are you expecting, sort of in this early the early stages of the the post Brexit UK trade reality?
2: I guess the first thing I would say is that this is not the end of Brexit. We have not negotiated a deal, and it's all done and dusted. <laughs> um, right. It's, it's a trade and cooperation agreement, um, which requires constant reviews and a review after five years. So we're effectively going to be Negotiating Brexit for the next twenty or thirty years, <laughs> <I was saying. laughs> um, and the other thing that's really important to to recognise is that there is nothing in the current Brexit deal at all to deal with services, or pretty much nothing, um, and there is again nothing to deal with financial services. So again, what we can expect in the next couple of months, provided that everybody doesn't get too irritated with one another It's some kind of <laughs> memorandum of understanding to deal with, you know, um, relations between the city and the financial system, the UK financial system, and how it plugs into the EU financial system.
0: So l- let me come back to that in a minute. But Tom, what about you? What about some high level kind of initial thoughts on on where we are now versus uh, Certainly. Um, two months
3: well, ago? Three points. Um, we... We have uh, tariff-free trade between the UK and the EU, subject to very complicated um, rules of origin uh, provisions that people are are grappling with. But of course, what what we um, also have for the very first time in 45 years is export controls between the the, the UK uh, and the the EU. Now, the export controls are relatively simple. There's an open general license, but um, you have to register and you have to comply with the terms of, um, of the license, which is new we also have um 30 new uh, country-specific trade sanctions uh, regimes and while they were supposed to, to mirror the eu's uh, trade sanctions um lawyers being lawyers couldn't resist the, the temptation to make some changes uh, and therefore they don't exactly mirror um, the eu sanctions and therefore we have um we have a an autonomous separate uk sanctions regime that is different from the eu um, regime um, and the third point is there's a trade bill going through the UK Parliament uh, currently and the, the House of Lords have just amended that bill or are seeking to amend it to um, require that um, before the UK government uh, enters into any international trade agreements, it undertakes a human rights assessment of the country. And if you tie that back to the fact that we've got a, 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 a new human rights sanctions regime, I think we can see that human rights is going to be a big topic. Um, in
0: uh, UK uh, trade and, and sanctions going forward. How, just on that last point, how similar? I I, um, I have read a bit about this and have heard a bit about this from other colleagues in the UK and the EU. But um, how similar is that regime to what we have in the states in terms of the global Magnitsky type? You know, essentially, the US has authority to go after OFAC has authority to go after human rights you know abusers anywhere around the world uh, and target them for, for sanctions, uh, you know, for economic sanctions, for blocking sanctions. So how, how does that at least the proposal or the so, frameworks are shaped? So up there is already,
3: um, a, a global human rights sanction regime, uh, in place that was put in place at the end of, uh, last year. I think there's about 70 individuals have been added to the, to the sanctions list as a result. So you, it gives you the authority to impose asset freezes, um, on, uh, individuals and entities where a state has violated um, an individual's right to life, a right, not to be tortured or to be free from slavery. And the two areas that they're primarily targeting at the moment, um, are, uh, uh Russia in connection with Magnitsky, um, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, um, a, a as well. So I, I think it's very similar. And I think that's an area we'll see quite a lot of, um, um, targeted sanctions being imposed under those, so, do you have any views on that? I think.
2: No, I think it is very, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it is very similar. Um, what is interesting is that the UK put out its like Nitzke-style sanctions a little bit in advance of the EU. But if you, although they are very similar, if you compare the wording, um, the EU one is actually wider. Yeah, as a practice, that was that was where I wanted to
1: jump in as a practical matter. I mean, now we have a different UK sanctions authority, some different human rights sanctions and the authorities for human rights sanctions. But how different is it going to be post Brexit in terms of these sorts of sanctions compared to the way it was when when Britain was in when the UK was in the EU?
2: Well, that's a really good question because, you know, the UK was one of the big beasts of sanctions policy in, in the EU. Um, and it's, 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 you know, it is really going to be interesting to see what happens within the EU going forward. Um, and it, it's the other thing that's really interesting is that the UK has reviewed the, the, um, designations that were made pursuant to the EU, uh, sanctions regime, and it's actually <laughs> removed several entities, well, in excess of a hundred entities and individuals from the sanctions lists on the basis that it's not satisfied that those individuals and entities meet the criteria. Yeah. I would, you could so it looks like, is,
3: games oh, oh go, ahead.
2: go ahead Tom. It feels like a little bit games playing to me.
3: <laughs> I think what I find interesting is that we do have this um, autonomous regime now. In in the main, the UK's foreign policy will align with the um, EU's foreign policy. We've you know, been very close to them for 45 years and in informing that. But we do have areas of the world where we have particular uh, and separate interests. So, for example, Hong Kong, Britain has a unique position when it comes to, to Hong Kong because of the history. Um, Russia as well, if there was any further instances of um, uh, British citizens being being targeted on, 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 in, on British soil, then you could see that a, a separate um, sanctions, asset freeze
0: provisions could be put in place. I was going to circle back to one thing that I think is Sue alluded to right at the outset. And I think is coming back around here in terms of the new regime, which is the idea that this idea that services and financial services in particular remain kind of a undefined, not, not sort of well understood sort of how that's going to play or work into the new sanctions regime. I wonder what either of you would think in terms of um, the prospect that the UK sanctions regime and sanctions enforcers and regulators could potentially leverage London's position in the in the global financial system, and in particular in the sort of European financial system uh, in the way that OFAC leverages New York and the, the U.S. banking system. You know, any connection, obviously the OFAC approach has developed over the years that any connection to a U.S. bank, to New York, to a correspondent account sitting at a, you know, anywhere in the U.S it's fair game for US jurisdiction to apply and, and potentially for violations to be found. I wonder if, if you think that there's any appetite for, for something that aggressive or, or that um, could we could be seeing with respect to London.
2: But the right to take a long arm jurisdiction has been um, reserved, I think, in the, um, the regulations dealing with civil enforcement of sanctions abuses. Um, however, I think we have to recognise the politics here. The UK is now sitting between the US and the EU. Um, its position, its position is somewhat uncertain, notwithstanding that we're happily describing ourselves as global Britain. And I have to question what political appetite there's going to be to really rock the boat and really try and be the, you know, the big enforcer. Yeah alongside
3: the US. I agree with that and the other point is that at the moment under the existing sanctions uh, the UK can take territorial jurisdiction if um, part of a sanctions breach goes through the city of of London or or through a UK bank so we don't actually need any further extension of the law it's just having the appetite to be as aggressive in the enforcement as we perceive the US authorities to
0: be. Right, and that's the more, that tends to be the more interesting question, right, is if it's there and it's kind of discretionary or a policy judgment, is is there the will or the appetite to do that?
1: And it it sounds like, it sounds like right now there might not be because because the UK is actually still trying to work a number of things out with the EU. Uh, on that point, it's kind of the flip side to the question. How much appetite do you think there's gonna be in the UK and the EU for continued cooperation on these issues? Because I know that the, the UK's intelligence function was actually very important to the EU's sanctions function. And, and now you know that there's there's separation, I'm wondering if there's gonna be that sort of cooperation on, on sanctions issues that there was before Brexit.
2: My personal take is that they will continue to be very closely aligned. It's in the interest of the UK and it's in, in the interest of the EU, um, to adopt similarly aligned positions. And I think that that you know that applies equally in relation to, um, you know the the, the concerns that are shared about the uh, long arm jurisdiction, the extraterritorial dur- jurisdiction of the US, um. You know it's a difficult as i keep saying the uk is now in a difficult position um but i think the it will continue to align to the extent possible yeah i agree Europe. with that and you
3: can you can see that already with um the response in respect of um, navalny and um the issues around nord stream two, because france and germany have come out with opposing um, views on on what should be should be done britain is staying completely neutral and it's talking about working with its international partners. So I don't think, with some exceptions, I think Britain in the main will seek to work closely with the EU and also with the US and to try and find a common uh, position. And and the the key area around that will be Iran.
1: Yeah, well, actually, there was some news this morning about Iran, I think. I think, you know, there's a conference, I guess, a security conference going on in Munich, at least virtually, and the US has announced that they want to restart the Iran talks I think there was that was um, the leadership on that might have come out of of Britain and and France and Germany and so I'm wondering kind of on Iran um, where do you see that headed at this point in terms of um, you know leadership from the UK in terms of negotiations in terms of what what's next
2: again the UK has very recently aligned itself again with the uh, with France and Germany with regard to calling on iran to comply with all of its obligations under the the jcpoa 1.0 um and the way i see it is that the uk will want to take i I think the uk will want to take a, a a major role in bringing the us into the discussions and aligning again just aligning themselves with the eu so that um there can be a, a renegotiation of the deal or, a de- or the U.S. coming back into the deal as quickly yeah, as possible. I agree.
3: You, Iran, I think, is of interest to Britain because of, again, our historical ties with um, uh, with Iran and the, and the Middle East. We, we feel we, we should be taking a, um, uh, a major role. Um, they'll, they'll want to work with the EU and the U.S. to try and find a, an enhanced um, comprehensive plan of of action i checked out last night the uk government's um uh, guidance on doing business with iran to see if there'd been any change Uh, and and there hasn't been the the last update was back in september and you know the the guidance says the uk government supports expanding trade relationships with iran and encourages uk um, um businesses to take advantage of the commercial opportunities arising from the lifting of sanctions and i think we all on this know 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 well that 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 the reality is extremely different <laughs> right but but that is how's that working for
1: them i mean it seems <laughs> like it seems like there's really nothing going on at this point in iran with respect to trade or at least very little because you can't get paid if you're sending stuff over to iran i mean well, is that certainly
0: and certainly not with respect to the UK. Maybe, maybe right. in maybe in some other pockets, but not in the UK. You no, know, the, the EU and UK blocking regs.
3: Yeah, that's
2: exactly right. It's Yeah,
3: yeah. So the, the blocking regs that were put in place to stop the long um, reach of the US secondary sanctions have had um, absolutely zero impact.
0: I was going to say, have you been, uh, so we've, uh, Tim and I have both dealt with these issues. I have not personally dealt with them in, in respect to the UK. I have in Germany and Italy and some other countries where we've, uh, we've had clients that have run into issues with the blocking uh, regs, but um, have you seen much activity there in term, uh, I've seen it mostly with sort of private actions that have been brought by, you know, aggrieved parties who are, who are saying, well, they're. They're not being honest about why they're walking away from their obligations. It's really because they're worried about US sanctions. Have you seen much of that at all? Or is it just did it sort of all kind of quietly subside, you know, over the last couple of years when the the reinstitution of the sanctions happened in late 2018?
2: What's what has been interesting from, from my perspective is the lack of interest of the prosecuting authorities in each of the jurisdictions. If you do report a clear breach of the blocking regulation um the competent authorities usually fight between themselves to hand it over to someone else like a hot potato <laughs> that's
0: that sounds about right That's yeah, a very I, u it's a very u.s approach it's not my problem it's your problem yeah. well
1: you know i i was talking to somebody in germany who tried to report a, tried to report something related to the blocking violation in germany and there's apparently a fax number that is completely <laughs> unmonitored in Germany where you send these things. And he tried to track down like where it actually went to. And it really was this room that had a fax machine and nothing yeah. else there and nobody paying attention to it. It sounds uh, like the UK is not that far uh, off.
3: In I terms think of the I, th- I think they would regulation. take a case if it was clear cut. The problem is that the, the laws actually gives a, 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 a wide room to avoid committing an offence. So you're not, it's a criminal offence to comply with the secondary sanctions, but you're allowed to make your own commercial decisions you're allowed to avoid doing business with um iran because to do so you'd have to be paid through a third party um banking route which gives rise to money laundering risk so you can justify these decisions most of the most of the activity i've seen in this area concerns the approach the banks are taking and is it appropriate for a bank to still have a clause a sanctions clause that says you won't do business with um iran and, and how do you how do you navigate or how do you align those sorts of provisions with the with the blocking um, regulations and, and that's where a lot of the the, the kind of contractual legal work has, has arisen but to answer your question tim most up until 2018 britain france italian german companies saw iran as a huge opportunity they were rushing into the market they then started seeing the practical difficulties of getting paid but as soon as the secondary sanctions were brought in place it, it was it was far too difficult and too scary for for most
0: companies and they withdrew And that aligns i think perfectly with what we have seen advising on the u.s side is it's just a it's a mirror image of that it's it's our our non-us clients who have dealt with this or who did um, you know reinvigorate their ties to iran over the 2016 to 2018 period i think have dealt with a lot of headache trying to disentangle but but they've still got the
3: ties and people are keeping their relationships warm perfectly lawful to do so there's huge um uh, investment opportunities um, in Iran and if the, if the diplomats can um, get the, the, the joint plan of action um, back on the table, uh, and perhaps a, perhaps a better agreement uh, in place, then I think there would be a, a significant reinvestment in, uh, in Iran, um, which um, you know, would be the, the benefit of, of British and international companies. appreciate that the um, US companies would still be excluded from the market unless um, Mr Biden is able to pull
0: off the deal of the century. So, so one other, so one follow up there, which we've heard a lot about, certainly is, um, you know, uh, maybe Sue. I mean, we were just talking about obviously the, um, you know, the prospects of you know UK companies trying to reengage with Iran if if we if there is a JCPOA two point if if there is um, sort of a you know a easing of the sanctions once again from the US do you just sort of handicapping the likelihood that UK companies and maybe even you know, other EU or EU companies will be willing to do that, given that they sort of got burned the first time around because there's the volatility in the US political situation? You know, Trump survived a second impeachment. He could run again in three and a half years. You know, like I, you know, we're all we're all sort of smiling at that, but it's, it's not out of the question. And, you know, we could be right back. This could be, uh, you know, to use a, uh, a uh, an old US movie reference it could be like groundhog day and we're doing this all again in 5 years if uh, if there is a deal. So what do you think the tolerance is there for UK companies given given that this first go around didn't didn't go so well in terms of the the mess that was created by the US withdrawal.
2: I think there's still continuing interest. I mean there has to be. There are 80 million people um, you know, with pent-up, you know, the sophisticated consumer society. So there is interest, but I think people will be cautious. Um, and what we saw first time around was that the EU went in with both feet, really went, got going. I mean, you know, the, the Germans in particular were very sophisticated, were sending trade delegations across all the time, um, and you would you'd just bump into them when you were, when you were in Tehran. Um, the uk was more muted um but the key thing i think for uk business is going to be the ability to to, to process payments that is that is the key so far as as the uk is concerned And, and I, yeah, get, I was gonna and, oh, go,
0: no go I ahead i was just gonna go say
2: in, in in jcp JCPOA 2,
1: 2.0, if it comes to that, I think there's at least two components that are going to have to be satisfied that really aren't right now. I mean, the first is the payments that you mentioned, Sue. I mean, it didn't work the last time. Even in the good years, it was it was a real problem getting paid. The second, and, and I think this is what Iran is already talking about in response to the Biden overture, is. There's got to be a mechanism so that that nobody can withdraw unilaterally um, at, once they're once everyone's in compliance. Like th- there was a mechanism to you know to to um, snap back, but that assumed non-compliance. But there was nothing in the agreement that said it, as long as it's going well uh nobody can leave and and i think that was because nobody imagined that that was going to be the result but now that we've seen it i think that's really got the the issue that's got to be addressed first
0: i can verify the fact that given that i was still in government when jcpoa was getting finalized and then implemented on the you know across the board here the snapback provisions were entirely designed to uh, prevent the iranians from sort of falling short of their obligations and there was never a thought that the e that the u.s or one of the other sort of parties to the deal we're gonna just sort of turn around and walk away disavow it so i agree that would be i think is is probably a safeguard that's going to have to be built in if there's a a a new version
2: yeah that's exactly the point it all went one way didn't
0: it yes exactly exactly um well, well let's um so let's Maybe pivot for a second to another uh, favorite topic of ours that we talk about on the podcast a lot, uh, which uh, you know Tom alluded to, Hong Kong and the sort of special relationship that the UK has with Hong Kong due to the historical ties. Uh, you know we we have spent a lot of time over the last year talking about the situation in Hong Kong, talking about the situation in China more broadly, mm-hmm. the national security law, obviously that got passed in Hong Kong, the um, anti-democratic sort of trends that we see there, the human rights um, issues that are coming to light every day, uh, not just in Hong Kong, but in other parts of China. You know, this has been, I think, and will continue to be, even though Iran, I think, in terms of the shared interest and, and ways in which the U.S. and the U.K. I think clearly will need to probably work together going forward. You know, China is one where the U.S. obviously kind of went it alone over the last few years and sort of decided to you know, fight China for what it was worth, kind of on its own. What do you see again in in sort of a po- we'll just continue to call it post Brexit, even though I take your point that we're going to be negotiating Brexit for years to come. Uh, in a post Brexit UK, just in terms of again sanctions, authorities, trade, you know, export controls, which has become a huge issue, obviously between the U.S. and China. Tom, you you touched on that initially in terms of some export controls changes what do What do you foresee in terms of u k and China if there will be any changes if there will be any perhaps more um, not to say this in a disparaging way, but perhaps more backbone or more sort of aggressiveness of the u k toward china in the in the coming years now that they're you're able to sort of chart your own path a little bit more?
2: i think the the u k is very concerned about uh, what has happened in relation to Xinjiang. Uh, they're very concerned about the security set situation in Hong Kong. You've seen, I think, a few signals around that, including, you know, the the UK's willingness to um, to to grant visas for that will is a path to up to three million Hong Kong Hong Kongers becoming British citizens, which in itself was somewhat ironic given that, you know, some would say that Brexit was bought on immigration grounds right. um, <laughs> do I, I the real question the real question that I really don't I don't think I have an answer to is how brave the UK is going to be in its policy vis-a-vis uh, China you know I think it was probably envisaging um, up until relatively recently, that you know, part of its global Britain strategy would be developing a better relationship with China. Um, is it gonna poke the bear though? I don't think so.
3: Yeah, uh, I don't think they will either. Um, and actually I think they'll try and build a positive constructive relationship and try and encourage um, China to have more discussions with them um, mainly because they want to uh, maintain a positive relationship um, to try and um, safeguard Hong Kong's um, position And um, the steps they've taken to date have been really very limited. So they they extended a partial arms embargo um, applied to China, to um, Hong Kong. And back in in November, there was some talk of um, China specific designations under the human rights sanctions Uh, that didn't materialize. And interestingly, in December, the UK placed 10 people on the list. So people from Gambia, Pakistan, Russia, Venezuela, and no Chinese individuals were uh, placed on the list. And I think that really tells you everything you, you need to know that but I think Britain will, will very much engage in soft diplomacy in this area rather than taking any um, aggressive steps.
1: And, and Tom, one, one subset of that is Huawei, right? I mean, Huawei has been a big issue in the United States. It actually has already come up in, in the confirmation hearing for the, the nominee for secretary of commerce. It's become a big issue there, even though her comments, at least as I read them were very minimal, it turned into an issue. How do you think that will play? The the Huawei issue will play in the UK? Because as I understand it, there's been some pressure from the US to have Huawei um, kind of kicked out of the UK with respect to the 5G conversation. Is is that likely to get some traction now that after Brexit? Um,
3: the, the, The UK definitely has has flip flopped on Huawei. It was actually until relatively recently it was still um, envisaging that they would have a major a major role in in five G. Uh, as I understand, they still have some role in five G. It's just the the more sensitive areas they are um, being excluded from. But Huawei is a very big company in the in the UK. Um, very um, significant um, trading relationships um, with them and other. Uh, Chinese telecoms and tech companies, um, and I, I certainly don't see us mirroring mirroring what um, the US have done um, uh, uh, against Huawei or, or any of the other telecoms or tech companies. So I don't know if just you've so got a different view on that.
0: Just a related question on that too, Tom. In terms of um, obviously the US has aggressively used you know the entity list to do, to go after um huawei and, and some of the other big chinese tech companies they've taken another a number of other measures as well um including using uh you know uh, the uh, attack on sort of the publicly traded securities and limitations there for U.S. persons, and which is sort of an unprecedented, unorthodox step. But um, one one area where Tim and I certainly are seeing this day in day out at this point is just just sort of basic export controls restrictions with respect to China. Now, obviously, the U.S. has had an embargo for many many years—an arms embargo but the the sort of tightening of just general export control restrictions, in particular with regard to uh, you know semiconductors and other sort of strategically valuable technology that maybe wasn't a few years ago seen as the most sensitive, but now I think is uh, viewed by u s. policymakers as as quite sensitive and and quite um, valuable to u s security um any any sort of trends or any sort of efforts or concerns in those in that vein out of the uk that they would tight that there might be a tightening up of, of certain types of technologies that can flow freely to china um so there's the, there are changes to our national security laws about um
3: who can acquire uh, companies that, that own um and develop sensitive um tech and and mm-hmm. uh, own sensitive uh, intellectual property but from an export control perspective i'm not aware of any Tightening of the licensing policy, so dual-use goods um, have to, you have to get a license to export um, to uh, China. Uh, I'm not aware of any policy change that would lead to a license not being granted. There is some uh, discussion about uh, uh, putting in place extra controls for uh, goods that could be used in um, internal repression in in Xinjiang, um, but not not specific to the to the tech side. That that might develop but at the moment i'm not seeing any 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 mood music around that
0: um okay so go ahead tim i was so i was just gonna say
1: so so one thing that we haven't talked about at least specifically post brexit is enforcement and and so sue I, i if if you could tell us kind of give us your Predictions about where Ofsi, the the counterpart to to OFAC over in the UK, will be headed post um, Brexit, and, and I know that before even before Brexit, it was starting to flex its muscles. But but where do you see it headed
2: post Brexit? Yeah, I mean Ofsi's enforce, enforce, Ofsi has surprised me with its enforcement powers, if I if I'm honest. Um, when the civil enforcement regime was first introduced, I was in sceptical that anything would really result from it because um, obviously is not as well um, funded as OFAC is and I have to say the first couple of enforcements were you know pretty unimpressive you know it was five thousand and ten thousand pounds fines for 250 breaches worth 250 pounds and you think well why did you even bother on that um, <laughs> <laughs> But the latest one, coming, you know, against Standard Chartered, which has really made me, and I think other sanctions practitioners, sit up and and pay attention. First of all, I mean, they they imposed a, a significant penalty, um, but also because. Um, you can see the ministerial review at work, and it's working. You know, again, I was very sceptical about ministerial review. You know, was it really likely that the minister would review the would review Ofsey's decision and take a decision against its own, his his or her own ministry? And the answer is, they do. They are independent, and that's been a big surprise. What do I think is going to happen going forward, I think obviously probably has a bit between its teeth and is you know feeling quite confident then
1: yeah i mean that that enforcement action at least from even looking at it from a us perspective was was relatively surprising i mean you had a voluntary disclosure you had a, an exception to the russian sanctions that that standard charter was trying to apply and apparently applied right more often than not even in connection with with the potential transactions that were at issue and got it wrong after it turned itself in and still got fined 20 million pounds. I mean, that that actually seems high from a U.S. perspective. I think if you had that sort of inadvertent, um, you know, good faith mistake that was voluntarily disclosed, I, I, there really aren't a lot of big enforcement actions that that have those characteristics in the United States. So it seemed pretty high to me.
3: Um, do you know, Tim, actually, it's, what's quite interesting about that fine, um, so that you're right, they got a 30 percent discount for self disclosure credit but the fine was based on the value of the transactions in, in breach of the russian sanctions they could only take into account the um the contra- the contraventions since the civil penalty regime that that sue mentioned had had come into force which was in april 2017 so all of the earlier transactions that were also in breach of the the russian sanctions were not taken into account for calculating the penalty and had they been taken into account the fine would have been closer to 60 million pounds. So it does show, I think that there is, as, as Sue says, you know, th- th- this civil penalty regime that's been put in place has real teeth and the banks so done that.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I think when we, so we devoted an entire segment on the podcast to this last year when it, when it was announced, because I think we were, we sat up and took notice right away and we're like, wow, this is quite aggressive. This is, you know, sort of has some of the hallmarks of an, o, an OFAC style. Uh, enforcement action and resolution with a big bank. Um but to to bring it back to the banks again because we've now talked about this a few different times. Um I mean have you have either of you seen as a result of this action perhaps any any change in behavior among financial institutions either your clients or the folks that your clients are interacting with in terms of perhaps a more cautious approach or you know obviously we know traditionally the the big banks the big global banks have feared OFAC kind of first and foremost, and then it's sort of everybody else's distant, you know, second or third. But do you think now this has, has, you know, yielded or will yield sort of a change in the compliance calculus and the in the enforcement risk calculus?
2: I suppose my answer to that is that the UK financial institution's natural reaction was to say no in any event. That hasn't changed. <laughs> it's only got a stronger, um, a stronger you know, impetus. I will say no.
3: Um, so, I've certainly seen banks issuing, so Sue deals more with b- banks in the financial service sector, I'm more on the trade sanctions side, so I deal with companies that are uh, that are having to interact with banks and get finance from them. Uh, I've seen that my clients are, are uh, receiving lots of questionnaires from their banks, asking them to disclose whether they're operating in particular countries, who um, who their customers are, and they're having to give more sanctions undertakings, whether that's driven by the by the U.S. or the U.K. or both, it's probably both. I think is the reality of it. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting about OFSI is they have this dual approach. So they're, they've they've hammered um, Standard Charter. They've got their case that sends out the big warning message. On the other side, they're 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 going for a strategy of engagement and encouragement with um, uh, other sectors that aren't as sophisticated as the banking sector and, and aren't as familiar with sanctions regimes. So they're getting in touch with energy companies, telecoms companies, travel companies, whole whole sectors who previously weren't aware of sanctions. And they're telling them, we have identified, usually through a bank telling us that you are party to uh, a transaction that breaches financial sanctions. Here's your first warning. get on top of compliance, get it sorted, and um, uh, and if it happens again, You'll be subject to enforcement, and I've I've had numerous clients who've had that level of engagement
0: with with Ofsea. That's really interesting because I think that that in some ways mirrors the the approach that OFAC took, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, which is, you know, the the banks and the financial institution, the financial sector, obviously, number one, sort of top regulatory uh, priority because it's the treasury department uh you know that's obvious but then uh as they kind of fanned out and more industries i think were essentially put on notice that they have these same obligations um you know there was some of those type of communications you still see that now i mean we 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 comment on that now uh when we see things you know devoted or targeted at the maritime sector or the fine art sector or the you know some maybe less traditional uh industries or sectors that are not maybe sanctions are not top of mind uh and and i but i think at some point it flips and then it's and then to your point tom you know when is the enforcement hammer going to drop on one of those because somebody has disregarded it or um you know has maybe done something uh you know purposefully uh illegal once yeah. they you know should have were noticed up essentially and, and brian you, the main this obviously deals with financial
3: sanctions the the trade sanctions enforcement piece is also developing um quite rapidly in the uk so trade sanctions and export controls are the domain of um, the uh, hm revenue and customs for uh, enforcement purposes and in the vast majority of cases they will ask companies to remediate and not to repeat their their misconduct they also have the power to impose what's called a compound penalty and this is um, very opaque. It's not like offset you don't get a, a big public announcement telling you the hist- how, um, about the issue and how the penalty was calculated. It's all kind of done behind the scenes. And what we're seeing is that um, UK exporters who who breach trade sanctions uh, are being subject to investigation by HMRC. In the main, they're getting to uh, agree compound penalties. And in the last year, the compound penalty rate has significantly uh, increased. And I think that's something we'll that's a trend we will we will see developing. And a particular area of focus for um, uh, HMRC appears to be Russia uh, and breaches of the the Russian oil and gas trade
0: sanctions. That's actually a great pivot because we've touched upon and danced around Russia a little bit, but we haven't really talked about Russia uh, squarely. So I think maybe we can can move to that because I think we expect certainly on the US side after a relatively early early in the Trump administration with the passage of Katza and some of the new sanctions that went into place, uh targeting Nord Stream 2 and the russian military and intelligence sectors and oil and gas obviously uh there was sort of a very dormant period due to the sort of political realities in the u.s um, but now i think there's going to be a reinvigoration on the u.s side with uh, election interference navalny um you know, uh, other other activities that the U.S. is deeply concerned about and is likely to act upon. So what would you say in terms of the next phase of UK uh, enforcement on the Russia sanctions front? Sue, what would you think is any anything new that is kind of in the on the horizon here with the in the post Brexit UK sanctions era?
2: I think the, the the main focus is going to be on human rights. I think it's all going to come back to human rights. I mean, it fits with you know, you know the fact that ESG is is the subject de jure anyway. Um, but I cannot see the see the UK wanting to get into any big argument either with with Germany or indeed with the with Russia in relation to Nord Stream two. It's not going to want to go there. Um, you know, the reality is that. Um, there are vast swathes of Eastern Europe that depend upon Russia for um, their energy requirements. And <laughs> it's not going to be a very happy um, relationship post-Brexit if the UK suddenly goes, do you know what, we don't really like that, so we're going to try and stop the financing that's going on in the UK, in in the city. I just I just don't see it. Um, that's not to say that the, the UK will not want to send messages, and it will send messages, but I think it will be Primarily human rights based, um, you know, trying to express concern around, um, you know, the, the the repression on free speech. Um, if something were to happen again in the UK, uh, you know, in terms of, you
0: know, another another poisoning, poisoning
2: people, yeah, yeah, then you know, right. query whether we would go a little bit further. But you know, even even if when you look at the history of that, we stamped out feet a lot and, and shouted, but didn't actually do very much.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Trade sanctions is, is interesting because the um, the, U, the new UK legislation does extend the trade sanctions. So the EU sanctions were, were, were um, the oil and gas um, sanctions, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about particularly, were, were focused on uh, oil and gas projects in Russia. Um, the UK have extended the oil and gas restrictions to um, any projects which have a Russian connection. So if you are, yeah, yeah. So I I think we'll see some enforcement around that and that will be companies will have inadvertently exported to a project in Africa that's actually been run for a a Russian company and um, somebody will make a disclosure and uh, we'll have some enforcement. But
0: I think on the policy front, I'm I'm completely aligned with Sue. Maybe I can ask this um, as a final parting shot. Um, One, uh, kind of on the enforcement front, one, uh, I think one thing that we've been contemplating, and that we've seen some evidence of, in the past uh, year or two, with respect to the U.S. Department of Justice collaborating more with SFO on certain investigations and and big multi-national uh, cross-border matters. Do we think in? What are your thoughts? Um, maybe Sue first, and then Tom on prospects for greater collaboration now maybe in the post brexit area between whether it's off-sea or or the the trade sanctions authorities with u.s authorities on those same type of uh investigations and in, in broad kind of cross-border matters do you think that there's more appetite or more prospect for that that we'll see more of these jointly announced kind of big splash um you know uh, i'm thinking about airbus obviously it was a big one that was sort of all of the um you know france uk us any do we think we'll see more things like that on the trade side
2: definitely i think the sanctions act uh makes specific um allowance for a a much greater degree of cooperation with um you know enforcement agencies outside of the eu if you looked at the 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 civil penalties regime, um, the guidance around that, re- basically stated that you know they would they would communicate and liaise with the with other competent authorities within the EU. Whereas the 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 new sanctions act, and it's not so new now, it's two thousand and eighteen, makes clear that they can you know they can liaise and provide information and communicate with other aligned authorities. And I think. <laughs> might be being a little bit cynical here, but I think it's just giving a fact in, the, in legal terms to what's probably been going on already.
3: Yeah I, I agree and you can see it um, seeing a lot of liaison with um, the SFO and the, and the DOJ some positive some not so um, in respect of, of big bribery cases there are some some of those cases in the, in the pipeline. Um, on the tax side of things, um, Britain, uh, America, uh, and other uh, countries have a have a formal arrangement where they're liaising on uh, tax evasion, uh, and you're going to you're going to see that in the sanctions and the export control piece. And the reality is, if there's an export control breach, if it's a you know a US re-export control breach, somebody makes a disclosure to the US authorities, you're going to find that there's French, British, uh, German parts, um, uh, and and therefore you're going to have parallel disclosures, and and that's that's an area of work that we're we're certainly. Uh, seeing, uh, and it's one of the reasons we're in touch with Miller and Chevalier so, so often because of the um, the cross-border nature of this work now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we always assume that there's conversations between OFC and you know, OFAC when we have matters that touch on both, but I, I'm not sure I've seen that actually taking place, but it sounds like it's happening more and more. I mean, we, you've got to assume it'll happen, but whether they do talk is a different matter. In the in the criminal side, um, we have seen the, the situation where both Ofe- or where both the DOj and SFO are, are supposedly in contact but they've they put us in between and had us be the intermediary <laughs> well tell the SFO this and tell DOj that it, they didn't actually directly talk to each other but I, I assume that's that's improving in the last few years. I
0: can I, I can attest to the fact that inter, intergovernmental cooperation as well as intragovernmental cooperation is not always what it is is cracked up to be, or what it is styled as. It's not quite as seamless as others might think. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with all that. I think it's slightly easier in the trade space because there's
3: there's there's not the um, kind of concurrent jurisdiction or battle for who's going to have jurisdiction. There's clear cut. That's a US breach. That's a UK breach. So I I think it's an area that lends itself to it, and an area that we need to be alive to. Certainly, if I certainly if I come across a, san- a UK sanctions breach. The next thing I'm thinking is: Is there a US breach that we need
0: to deal with? Right. All right. So with that, I think I think we are. Um, I think that's basically everything we wanted to cover uh, today. So I guess any I will I'll pass to Sue and Tom for any final thoughts, but I think we're we're just about ready to conclude here. So Sue, any, any final any final thoughts, any prognostications perhaps? We Tim and I like to wildly speculate about what is coming in the future on the US side. So we invite you to do the same and with no repercussions, because again, you're not giving legal advice. You're just these are your own personal thoughts. So any anything you wanna you wanna offer up about what we talked about today or anything else?
2: Um I'm going to say that I think there is going to be a JCPOA 2.0 in around 12 to 15 months.
0: We look forward to having you back on the podcast when that is when that is ready so that or if not before then but certainly then to 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 celebrate your prognostication. Um
1: absolutely and no and no no consequences if you're wrong. That's the beauty of this
3: thing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I am going to say that is going to push extremely hard for a US trade deal um um, and if you can take chlorinated chicken out of the out of the equation <laughs> and um, make your tariffs on on Scotch whiskey uh, a bit cheaper, then I think I think I think we're done. Um, and maybe we should get maybe we should get the, um, the negotiators on this on this podcast from a um, from an export control and sanctions perspective. I think in the next 12 months, we'll see Offsea um imposing a, a significant fine outside of the financial services sector, potentially telecoms, maybe maybe pharma. Um, and what's happening outside of the financial services sector is the area that interests me, because I, I see a lot of these companies now taking sanctions uh, extremely seriously. As, partly because of the, the the attitude of the banks, but also because they're recognising the enforcement
0: risk that is um, is present. All right, that's great. Those are some those are some perfectly um, that's that's a perfectly well tuned prognostications that's just like the way we like to do it here on embargoed so um well we'll sue tom thank you so much for joining this us we really appreciated this really this has been fun, really fun. This educational fun uh so thank you both and uh and we will let you go now so enjoy enjoy your weekend so that was great. Thank you to our friends Sue Malar and Tom Stocker for joining us today uh, to talk altering UK sanctions, export controls, trade in in the post Brexit UK world. That was uh, that was fun, and I think is going to encourage us to have more interesting guests uh, and friends from around the world join us in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, two quick thoughts, because it was really fun listening to them. One is, I, I think that the progression of off actually seems to mirror quite a bit, you know, f- quite a f- few years later. But the progression of OFAC, where OFAC, you know, around the 2000s, their big, their big function seemed to be finding people who bought Cuban cigars, you know, $500, $1,000 fines. And then obviously they progressed to the banks and now they progress beyond the banks. It seems like office is making that same uh, transition probably a lot faster than than OFAC has, but they've got a roadmap to follow. The The other thing is just Nord Stream 2. It's so hard to wrap your mind around what a political football that is. I mean, we keep imposing more and more sanctions against Nord Stream 2 in the say, states like it's some consensus issue that, that is easy to resolve, but uh, clearly the EU and the UK really do feel otherwise.
0: Yeah, and I think on that latter point and we've said this I think pretty recently when we talked about the new uh, sanctions that were imposed, it, you know, it may be just too little too late and also with for the US, from the US perspective and also without the will and the strength of the UK and the EU to get behind the US position, it just doesn't seem like there's going to be enough of an obstacle erected there to sort of you know ultimately deter or or derail the project it it just seems like it's a matter of um when not if it will be completed but we shall see uh okay and with that we so again thanks to sue and tom uh and now uh that we've completed sort of the main portion of the episode for today we will pause for our favorite sound effect and we'll get into the lightning round. So we're going to hit three topics. We're going to do these very quickly. Um, A couple of these in particular, the first one we will most certainly come back to in the not too distant future. Uh, And so topic number one in the lightning round is the Burma executive order. Uh, So obviously, on the last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about and speculating what was going to happen with respect to Myanmar and the military coup there. What was the US reaction going to be? What was the approach going to be? I think. my so for those who haven't seen, obviously there was a an executive order that was issued uh, on February 11, so just over a week ago. Uh, that is pretty, I would say, traditional in terms of a, a sort of your your typical standing up of a of a new. It's sort of a new, although it's a you know essentially a re, re re standing up of, of an old program, a new program uh, in terms of imposing. Uh, blocking sanctions or the ability to impose post blocking sanctions um that is in uh it could be deployed quite broadly obviously there is there is the provision that allow it uh, targets the defense sector but also any other sector of the Myanmar economy so that's a very similar to the approach we've seen in Venezuela and some other programs that it sort of allows the US and allows OFAC to sort of broadly target other swaths of the economy but in its initial deployment and the initial um, designations that we saw, it's really just targeted at the military leadership and at three companies that are in the gems and jewelry industry that are purported to be sort of sources of income uh, and revenue for the military. So uh, I think it's it's in line, I think, with what we were discussing, what we were expecting. Uh, it's a fairly um, measured, I guess, initial volley of designations, but obviously there's the potential for much more. And also the big question, of course, is this going to be worked and deployed in concert with diplomacy and other actions and other levers to try to ultimately achieve what the US seems to want here which is to get the civilian democratically elected government back in in place uh over time so that's that's really in sum what we've seen Tim what are your what are your sort yeah, of quick I, thoughts on on that?
1: Two two quick takeaways that are kind of at least implicit in what you just said, Brian. I mean, one is there is room to grow. So it did start small. It started targeted. It's really at the coup leaders. Um, and and then I guess my second point was who knew that the coup leaders were into the bling? I mean, like they the precious precious gems is is where they start with with trying to really put the squeeze to the leaders of the the Myanmar military. I, I had no idea, but I guess OFAC knows better.
0: So one thing I'll say on that front is we did (laughs) we did discuss the last time on the last episode that there are a couple of well-known conglomerates that are controlled by the military that are large sources of revenue. These entities are owned by controlled by one of those conglomerates. The conglomerate itself not designated at this point, although again room to grow. We could see more. That would that would I think take out a big swath of uh, you know economic uh power and uh you know revenue and and just sort of economic vitality i think from the country and so i think that's why we're seeing a more targeted approach at first but you know we could see could see that in the future we don't know so anyway i think tim's exactly right there's room to grow uh so we shall see and and of course i'm sure we will be back to back to the burma executive order in the future as as uh, this situation develops over the next months so uh so with that let's go to lighting around topic number two which is yemen
1: so yemen this is another one that we have talked about on earlier pod podcasts uh at the end of the trump administration uh ansarala which is essentially the leaders of the rebellion in uh in in yemen and and aligned with the the, the Houthi tribe that is is controlling in control of the north yemen the trump administration designated them at the near the end of the the trump Trump, uh, you know, as Trump's term was coming to an end, uh, and essentially took sides in the in the Yemen Civil War by doing that. Uh, it, we thought that that might not be long for this world, and that turned out to be right uh, very recently. So, you know, on February 16th, so less than a month in, um, the Biden administration uh, removed Ansarala and and the related designated entities and people from the SDN list so now essentially we're back to where we were uh beforehand which was that uh you have both sides of the civil war um are are still you can still deal with them they they also of fact also repealed the the related general licenses which had created that situation almost immediately after President Biden took office. But I, I think what that there was a, a warning that went along with this removal, which was they're still gonna watch carefully what's going on there. So I don't think they're essentially taking the Ansarala side and they didn't want it to be read that way. They're just they're just trying to go back to a more of a position of neutrality in terms of the two sides of the civil war.
0: Yeah, and I think the interesting thing is, uh, and also along with that, the, the State Department revoked the, um, the designations relating to the t- foreign terrorist organization status as, as well. Um, that all went uh, That was all done in concert. I, I just think that the one of the interesting things that we talked about when this first came up right in the final days of the Trump administration was, well, this is clearly just trying to throw up roadblocks and throw up obstacles to sort of lock in and solidify Foreign policy of the outgoing administration, and the answer here is that it, it took a month. It took a month to completely erase that, essentially, uh, and, and which really is, less
1: time. Like less time yeah. as a practical matter, because the general license came in, you know,
0: like a week, a week in. Yeah, exactly. So I- I- anyway, just interesting from that perspective to just sort of keep that in mind, uh, and that the last topic we're going to talk about is also sort of partially related to that as well. Um, but it just is a reminder that you know. F- u.s foreign policy u.s national security policy uh u.s kind of sanctions policy is quite fungible at the end of the day and the 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 folks that hold the levers of power have a lot of ability to sort of shift on a dime and shift in in you know completely upend and erase essentially what has happened before so uh and with that let's oh, wait, go to ele- elections oh, matter
1: i think that's the
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, there's that. That is definitely true. We believe that on embargoed. Uh but uh yeah, I think that's just a, you know, an interesting lesson here to sort of see play out in real concrete terms. And then the last topic, topic number 3 for the lightning round and I'm proud of us for actually going at lightning speed today for a change is um WeChat and TikTok. So, uh just last week, uh there was a um there was a uh, it became clear it became uh known on the same day actually as the i believe the um the burma a- a executive order was announced i think this is uh february 11. there were a couple of court filings one in um out in california one in dc and i will just read the relevant language which Says uh, as the Biden administration has taken office, the Department of Commerce has begun a review of certain recently issued agency actions, including. The Secretary's prohibitions regarding the WeChat mobile application at issue in this appeal in relation to those prohibitions. The Department plans to conduct an evaluation of the underlying record justifying those prohibitions. The government will then be better positioned to determine whether the national security threat described in the president's August 6 2020 executive order and the regulatory purpose of protecting the security of Americans and their data continue to warrant the identified prohibitions. Uh, This is. I think exactly what we were expecting uh to see um so i think we'll take credit for calling calling this calling this pretty accurately there was the essentially the identical filing in the TikTok litigation as well in dc uh and i think the look it, they haven't come out to say it there was some sort of ca- caveat language afterward that we, you know the us government remains committed to being sort of tough on china and protecting us uh privacy and data security interests but i think at, in all for, you know, all practical purposes, this is the the death knell for these executive orders. And I think these are going to be, I would be shocked if they, um, if the, you know, either the executive orders are, are sort of revoked uh, or, you know, the prohibition certainly I think will be if not revoked, then substantially reduced and will essentially moot the the litigation that's going on right now. That would be what I would expect at this point. I don't know how quickly that'll happen, but I would think, again, we don't have a secretary of commerce yet. We don't have some of the senior political appointees yet in the commerce department, but that should be coming soon. And so I would say in the next 30 to 60 days, we'll probably get, um, another, uh, communication and, and perhaps, an actual concrete policy pronouncement, um, sort of, uh you know putting putting these things to uh to rest uh permanently
1: yeah i mean i think we've said it in in earlier episodes but both of these actions seemed idiosyncratic um not very well justified and potentially given the timing and and the the main spokesperson for them politically motivated as part of an election and so you know i think it's appropriate and and we basically anticipated that the Biden administration would want to review it. That doesn't mean, I'm not sure it's the death knell. I mean, I think you might see something come out of this um, to the extent there really were justifications there that haven't been publicly revealed Perhaps there will be some action that comes out of it. I think whatever action happens will be very different. So I, in in that sense, it's a death knell. I don't think we're going to see these weird sorts of designations coming out of the Commerce Department that prohibit, you know, app transactions in the way that that happened before. But I, th- th- there might be th- this might not be the end for, for WeChat and TikTok of any, you know, action by the us government uh related to whatever was driving those earlier ones we'll, we'll wait and see but i think it's appropriate to do a review because this this whole um the both of these executive orders made very little sense at least to me
0: yeah i think as we've said before it's not that the underlying concerns have changed at all they have not it is the sort of means and methods of achieving those ends potentially or addressing those concerns and i do think so i, I agree that it doesn't mean that there will be nothing the, this, the slate will be sort of wiped clean, so to speak, for WeChat and TikTok. But I think in the in this iteration or this you know version 1.0 of whatever the restrictions uh, were um, in place that never really took effect, uh, I think we I think we are essentially seeing the end of that. I should add too that, you know, remember that there's also the the divestiture of TikTok by ByteDance that's floating in the background. And the reports are now that that is about to, that is about to potentially fall apart or be sort of, or that CFIUS and company are are ready to perhaps um, sort of, you know, rethink or walk away from the previous position on that as well. So I I think, again, I'm I'm certain we will come back to WeChat and TikTok on a future episode. because we can't quit wechat and TikTok, but uh the but i think there's a a lot of shifting a lot of shifting uh ground here and and it's now these are the first sort of uh indications that we're we're about to see sort of real um you know rethinking of the u.s position on this
1: yeah one quick final comment on this is that it is significant at least to me that uh the the Divestiture order related to Chinese uh, military companies. That whole program does not seem to be, at least immediately, being rethought by by the U. S. And that was, you know, another kind of late-term um, executive order that the Trump administration issued. There's still guidance coming out on those post, you know, post uh, Trump, and so. It, while these these executive orders may not be long for this world, that one seems to have survived into the Biden administration and, and in some sense, maybe, you know, more vigorous.
0: Yeah, so we, we shall see. And obviously we'll we'll be back, uh, I'm sure, to cover these on on a future episode. Um, so with that, I think we are done. We are wrapped for this week. Um, Again, thank you very much to Sumalar, Tom Stocker for joining us and for providing their expertise and their insights on what's happening in the UK and what they're expecting uh, in the future in a post Brexit UK on the sanctions export controls and trade side of things, um, we will. Um, as always, be back in a couple of weeks. I think we'll be back to sort of a normal, uh, more typical format in, in two weeks and cover a few things that have come up that we just didn't have time to cover today. And I'm sure hopefully there will be no military coups in the next two weeks that will force us to uh <laughs> have it put that to the top of the, or, of the do an emergency podcast.
1: We, we could have our first yeah. emergency podcast,
0: yeah. Let's hope, let's hope not. Um, yeah, I but agree. uh. <laughs> in any event. Um, So thank you to everybody, as always, for tuning in. Uh, Until next time, uh, stay safe and stay sanctions-free.
1: That was really fun. And I thought Sue and Tom were great, so maybe we should do that again next month. Not the next show, but maybe next month with respect to some other friends.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Stay sanctions-free, everybody.
0: All right, thanks, everyone. Bye. (laughs)